0: I think that there are technological breakthroughs that are um, at least you know, on the horizon that could help us solve the problem. But ultimately, for me, climate change is a technology issue and not a regulatory issue.
1: Welcome to Environmental Insights, podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our environmental economics program. Although in the past I featured economists in this podcast series, We've also been privileged to host some top lawyers and legal scholars, including Sue Biniaz, who's now back at the U.S. State Department, Ricky Revez, who's at NYU Law School, Dan Esty from Yale Law School, who's now off at the WTO in Geneva, and from here at Harvard, Jody Freeman of Harvard Law School. Now that's a diverse group in terms of gender, but it's not a diverse group politically. So today, we're going to begin to make up for that with an environmental lawyer who has worked closely and held important positions in Republican administrations in the United States. But I didn't invite him here because of his political background and viewpoint, but rather because of his excellence, because he is one of the country's leading and most prominent environmental lawyers. As you'll soon find out, he's both smart and articulate. I'm talking about Jeffrey Homestead, who leads the Environmental Strategies Group at Bracewell in Washington, DC. Welcome, Jeff.
0: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
1: So before we talk about your extensive experience in government at the White House and at EPA, or about your current thinking about energy, environment, and climate change law and policy, I'd like to go back to where you came from and where you've been. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which was a wonderful place to grow up. I
0: know Boulder well.
1: Uh, and you went to primary school and high school there? Yeah, primary
0: school and middle or what, what was then junior high school and high uh-huh. school. Yep.
1: And, and then what was next? You graduated from high school, and then what?
0: I graduated
1: from Fairview High School, and then went off to Brigham
0: Young University in, uh, in Utah. And there you studied? Uh, I studied economics. Uh, uh-huh. E- economics and, and English.
1: Now, you received your degree in 1984, and looking at your CV, it looks like you immediately went on to law school. Is that right? That's correct. Yep, I went to law school right after I graduated. Now, I could ask you why you went to Yale Law School of the many law schools. I mean, I guess one answer is that it's traditionally ranked as the number one law school in the United States, uh, although people at Harvard Law School, I guess, would give us a hard time about that. Were there other specific reasons for your choosing to go to Yale?
0: You know, certainly just the overall ranking was important. But I had just heard really wonderful things about what it was like to study at, at, at Yale, and uh, all those things turned out to be true. I, I really enjoyed my three years there. I think there's a lot of law school graduates who can't say that, but uh, f- for me, law school was, was really a wonderful intellectual
1: adventure. Was there a particular professor that you would cite?
0: Uh, you may know Guido Calabresi, who,
1: who was then the dean of the law school, but also
0: taught some introductory classes, and uh, I feel like I learned a great a great deal from him about about a lot of things. And then another professor named Owen Fiss, who you may or may not know, I who was, know. Who was uh, very much on the on the other side of the political spectrum from where I was, um, but I appreciated the fact that that with the Socratic method, he uh, he gave me and a few other conservatives plenty of opportunity to to share our views and a in a respectful way, and and actually, when I, when I was looking for a clerkship, he um, wrote me a, I think, a very nice letter of recommendation that that ended up, uh, getting me a a clerkship that I enjoyed very much.
1: And that's with uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, is that right? That's right. That's right. And that's at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is, I believe, second in importance only to the U.S. Supreme Court. Because its admittedly small geographic jurisdiction, namely Washington, D.C., means that it hears appeals involving administrative law and constitutional law, or do I have that wrong? It's all second. Hand for me. <laughs>
0: well, those of us who clerked there certainly like to say that it's the second most important court. And and, and it's true that I think the majority of justices on the Supreme Court today actually clerked on the, on the D.C. Circuit before before mm-hmm. they went on to the Supreme Court. And in fact, when I was clerking for Judge Ginsburg, he was nominated for the Supreme Court. Right. Um, and ended up withdrawing after it it came out that he had he had smoked marijuana as a as a law professor at Harvard.
1: Right, of all things. Of all
0: things, yes. Back then, that was considered, I think, very controversial. Maybe not so much anymore.
1: I presume not now, but I'm I'm not sure. Um, Now, So then, after your clerkship, did you go directly to the White House, or did something else intervene?
0: No, I I had always expected to be sort of a corporate deal lawyer. That sounded Mm -hmm. very interesting and appealing, and I finished my clerkship and and went on to a, a Wall Street firm. Uh, but it was a wall street firm uh, that had an an office in dc and and i was i I went there thinking that i would move to new york in a year or two after my wife finished graduate school Mm -hmm. Uh, but other opportunities came along and and kept me in washington for the rest of my career
1: and what was the firm you were with in washington
0: Uh, uh, davis polkin wardwell
1: Uh uh-huh of course and so you enjoyed that but then this other opportunity came along namely to become an associate counsel at the White House for President George H.W. Bush. That's correct, yes. my, my Judge Ginsburg had, had, as you may
0: know, had been the head of OIRA un, mm-hmm. in the Reagan administration and then went on to become the head of the antitrust division at DOJ. And so he was very, I think, well-connected with people in the George H.W. Bush administration. And, um, and I think with a recommendation from him and some other people that I had gone to law school with, I ended up... Uh, getting a phone call one day from an, a former classmate of mine asking if I would be interested in interviewing for a job in the White House Counsel's office, and I, I of course, jumped at the chance.
1: And did you, you interviewed with Boyden Gray? I assume is that right?
0: I did. No, that was Boyden Gray. I interviewed with him. I, I remember I interviewed with Rob Portman, who also uh-huh. was in the White House Counsel's office back in those days, uh, and that really has changed the course of my of my professional career.
1: So that makes it sound, from what you said so far, including that, that perhaps your interest and activity in environment, energy, uh, law, and policy started while you were at the White House in the council's office?
0: That's absolutely right. I've come to understand that there was an environmental law class at Yale when I was there, but I, Mm -hmm. I, I never took it. and. If you would have asked me then if this is something I would pursue, I I would have said absolutely not. But uh, after I I went to the White House and 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 came to realize how how interesting and important it was, uh, that's really what I've done for the rest of my career.
1: And indeed, uh, some listeners might not realize they they would hear counsel's office, and environment, and not recognize that during the George H.W. Bush administration with Boyden Gray running the show, Boyden was absolutely central to the development and eventually the passage in the two houses of Congress of the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, including the path-breaking SO2 allowance trading system.
0: That's right, And, and I think you may know this, but Uh, President George H.W. Bush had been vice president for eight years Mm -hmm. and had been the head of something called the Council on uh, Regulatory Reform. Mm -hmm. And, And so he had been involved in a lot of regulatory issues, including a lot of Clean Air Act issues. And many of the people who went to his White House had served with him as vice president who had also been involved in these regulatory issues. So there were six or seven very senior White House officials who were who were deeply involved in developing the 1990 amendments, and I, I actually think that's the reason why they ultimately passed, because there was enough attention and enough um, direction and guidance and assistance from the White House uh, that, that I think eventually led to the passage of that bill. And, and, and Boyden was certainly one of, one of the key people who was involved in that effort.
1: During that time, I spent a lot of time with him. I was commuting to Washington on a weekly basis. I was running something called Project 88 for Senator Wirth and late Senator Hines, in which we had proposed just such a system, an SO2 allowance trading system. And it was wonderful to work with Boyden and, and others on that at the White House. So let me ask you then, while you were there, something that some listeners might not recognize is the fact that that was a Republican administration, but it was a very different kind of Republican administration than what at least the younger listeners might assume. Now, this has come up before in these podcasts when Dick Schmollinsey was on, who, of course, was at CEA at that time, and, and several others, for that matter. But the George H.W. Bush administration had actually developed the proposal for the Clean Air Act and Amendments in 1990 and then sent it off to what was assumed to be and to some degree was an initially hostile Democratic Congress.
0: That's right. You know, I didn't know it at the time. I was relatively new to Washington. But it was, I think, a unique moment Um, and and a time when there was, uh, I, I think, less partisanship when it came to environmental issues. Um, there was, of course, still wrangling back and forth between uh, Democrats and Republicans, but a real desire to uh, come up with a compromise that everyone could could support. It, it, it was, I think, an unusual time.
1: Absolutely, or or maybe I I will hope that this is an unusual time with the degree of political polarization uh, that we have now, and that we will get back at some point to something like those days. But let's let's fast forward uh, while we're talking about your government service. Let's fast forward through the Clinton years to the administration of George W. Bush, the earlier president's son, when you held a Senate-confirmed position at EPA, namely Assistant Administrator for Air and Radiation. So again, how did that come about? Let me go back just quickly to the the first Bush administration.
0: Um, One of the... great things about being in the White House is that um, everybody is willing to talk to you and, and, and come in and, and talk about issues. And I had access to experts at, at, at EPA, certainly, um, uh, industry players who, who cared about these issues. I spent a fair amount of time with Owyra, a
1: mm-hmm. fellow,
0: fellow named Art Frost, who you know, and I spent right. many, many hours with Dick Schmollensy. Mm-hmm. And I came to realize that... Um, that this set of issues was was very interesting, simply it was a combination of science and economics and law and politics um, that make it an extraordinary uh, area to in which to practice law. Um, and, and I go back to that just to sort of explain how I ended up going to EPA eventually, because mm-hmm. I, during the Clinton years I went to a law firm, I was an environmental lawyer. But I certainly, um, I, I had what I, what I like to believe was sort of a public policy practice where certainly we were involved in the nitty-gritty day-to-day issues of, of Clean Air Act compliance and enforcement, but, but always had a very keen interest in the different regulatory programs, those that worked, those that didn't work so well. <laughs> and um, when George W. Bush was elected, um, I had not originally intended to go back into government but mm-hmm. some some of the people who I had worked with eight years before were uh, were involved in that uh, in that administration including the office of presidential personnel and and reached out to me to see if I was interested in, in throwing my hat in the ring uh, and initially they approached me about going back to the White House counsel's office but um, uh, but I remember saying I actually think that I could be of greater service to the administration and to the country by going by going to EPA. Mm-hmm. So um, again, that had not been my intention. But after conversations with my with my wife, we realized that this might again be a, a once in a lifetime opportunity, and so I threw threw my hat in the ring.
1: And so you were there in that position from 2001 to 2005. What were one or two? top highlights for you of those years as you look back on
0: it? Something that you may not even be aware of is um, the first few months I was there uh, I had not yet been confirmed and so I was not really Mm -hmm. involved publicly uh, even in in, in terms of meetings with outside parties and I spent much of that time working with senior career officials to develop a legislative proposal that became the the, the Clear Skies Act Uh and the idea was um, to develop a cap and trade program f- for the power sector, mm-hmm. for SO2 and for NOx and mercury, right, and uh, do something that was that certainly at the time was considered to be very progressive, b- but use that to replace a lot of the other regulatory programs that apply to the power sector. Um, you, as you know, power plants are subject to m- many different Clean Air Act programs, uh, and there was there was sort of no rhyme or reason to the way they were regulated and so again working with some very good analysts at EPA we we came up with a a regulatory reform proposal where we believed that we could get significantly greater emission reductions at a a lower cost than we could have with Mm -hmm. implementing the Clean Air Act so that was um, a real pleasure to put that together Um, unfortunately we we came up one vote short in the senate environment and public works committee Um, the the president put a fair amount of effort into that but but ultimately we just we came up just short
1: and my rec my recollection which may be flawed is that one of the sources of opposition to the legislation was from democrats because they were disappointed that it was a three pollutant bill rather than a four pollutant bill where number four would have been carbon dioxide is that right or no 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 that's absolutely right that
0: probably was the biggest issue had had we just been negotiating about three pollutants i i Mm -hmm. i I think we it would have been enacted but again you may remember that george w bush on the campaign trail had called for a four pollutant bill and um, and only after being elected, and I, and I think receiving a, a lot of pressure from industry, mm-hmm. this decided that CO2 was not a pollutant like SO2 and NOx and and mercury, and 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 dropped that. Um, so so we ended up developing a, a three pollutant bill, and I think. The environmental community didn't want to have any Clean Air Act amendment for the power sector that didn't also include CO2. I see.
1: It's sad because of the fact that my recollection anyway is that beyond the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, what those were accomplishing with SO2, that legislation was going to actually result in an additional 75% reduction in SO2 emissions in the power sector.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right, and and what I will say is that was our sort of initial proposal, <laughs> and there was a great deal, deal of debate whether we should go in with our bottom line or whether we mm-hmm. should leave a little negotiating room, and and I think, you know, based on the analysis we had done um, and and support that we had from John Graham at, at OIRA, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we probably would have gone beyond the seventy five percent reduction.
1: <laughs> so let's let's turn to today. Can you just say a word or two? Um, about the nature of your work at Brace, Bracewell. When I left government, I actually I took it took a year off
0: and um, and uh, had a kind of an amazing adventure with with our family. And then when it was time to go back to the professional world, um, I ended up going to Bracewell, because it, it has a very significant public policy practice. Mm-hmm. Um, my law firm has a big uh, government relations group that's that's been very involved in energy and environmental issues, as well as a traditional environmental group, as well as what we call strategic communications. And for many of the issues that I cared about and had worked on, it was important to be able to address them uh, really in all three areas in terms of sort of the public policy debate um, uh, the kind of uh, uh, lobbying and efforts that you have on the hill as well as sort of traditional regulatory issues and so i've been working again almost entirely on clean air act issues although a a big part of that in the last decade has been uh, the regulation of co2 um, and and I, I represent quite a range of clients, but, mm-hmm. but, but included in that is a, is a big coalition of power companies. So I've continued to be very involved in that set of issues, uh, both in sort of the public policy arena as well as sort of traditional environmental enforcement actions and such things.
1: So that that's a natural lead-in for us to talk about uh, climate policy, particularly from a legal perspective. But I assume that the most important and certainly the most prominent legal event affecting climate policy was the June Supreme Court decision in West Virginia v. EPA. Can you just, first of all, just very briefly summarize that decision? Um.
0: So let me say yes, I think that decision is probably the most important administ- administrative law decision mm-hmm. in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, given the way that the, the court approached it. And they, they, what they really did was was um, develop the contours of a legal doctrine that's been uh, sort of floating around in the half a dozen Supreme Court cases over the last 20 years that's known as the major question doctrine and and, mm-hmm. and that case is the first time that the that that the court majority had used that doctrine explicitly and and what they basically said is they looked at the at the obama administration's clean power plan um and again the procedural posture of the case was unusual you know the clean power plan was stayed what back in 2015 mm-hmm. and finally made its way to the supreme court and you may remember that the centerpiece of the Clean Power Plan was what the agency called um, generation shifting—the idea that to get the necessary CO2 reductions, they would explicitly shift generation from coal-fired power plants to natural gas plants and, and renewables. And um, and what the court did was look at the specific provision in the Clean Air Act that that the Obama administration had used and. And noted that it had been interpreted in a very different way for 40 years, um, and and what they said in, in the case was, you know, there are certain extraordinary cases that involve a, a major question, something of great political and economic significance, and they said you know, before an agency can regulate in that area or in that way, they need to be able to point to a clear statement from Congress that that's what Congress intended them to do. And since there since there was no such clear statement in the Clean Air Act, um, they they ruled that that was beyond EPA's regulatory authority. So they explicitly said EPA can can regulate CO2 under the Clean Air Act but they can't explicitly use generation shifting. And and they talk about, you know, in essence, what EPA did was decide, you know, at that time, roughly 40% of the generation came from coal, of the the electricity generation came from coal-fired power plants. And the EPA wanted to to limit that to about 20%. And they said that was beyond EPA's regulatory authority.
1: So I'm not a lawyer. So is this a fair, simplistic, Summation of this is that under the major questions doctrine, they found that Chevron deference does not apply.
0: Yes, I think that's fair. People, people have talked about this as sort of a preliminary step before you get to Chevron, Uh and and I think that's probably a good way to characterize it.
1: Okay. Now, in response. To that Supreme Court decision, some parties, um, mainly ones on the left, uh, such as the Center for Biological Diversity and 350.org, have argued, I think fairly recently, for EPA... To set a national standard for CO2 concentrations under a very different part of the Clean Air Act, namely the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, the NACs, which you're very familiar with. Now, again, to a non-lawyer on its face, that strikes me as even more problematic than using Section 111D for the Obama Clean Power Plan. But what do you think? Uh,
0: what, what I will say is when the Obama administration was looking at how to regulate CO2 they, they looked at a number of different options, and, and one of those was whether they could develop a, a National Ambient Air Quality Standard, a NAC standard. Mm-hmm. And um, they also noted that it was plausible that CO2 could be classified as a hazardous air pollutant and could mm-hmm. be regulated under intersection 112. Right. Um, and they decided that the most um, defensible approach would be to regulate intersection 111D, which is what they did in the Clean Power Plan. I give that by way of background because I think they understood that regulating it as an NAX, as a criteria pollutant was a stretch. Yeah. was a stretch. And um I think there's very little chance that any effort like that would pass muster with in, in the course, and certainly not with the Supreme Court. And and I don't think this administration, even if it has a second term, would ever pursue that approach because they, they wouldn't want to spend the time and the effort knowing in advance that they were almost certain to be struck, mm-hmm. certain to be struck down.
1: So s- stepping back from that, what, overall, what is your assessment of the Biden administration's climate, or if you prefer, even broader environmental policy, the approaches they've taken, uh, the achievements, successes, failures, all of that?
0: you know they, they they have made very clear that climate change is one of their highest priorities and um and and they've actually done a couple of very important things that I know you're aware of uh i think their first priority was in the transportation sector and they uh and they finalized much more aggressive co2 emission standards for uh for vehicles mm-hmm. um and then they they have proposed, but not yet finalized, a pretty aggressive approach to regulate methane emissions from oil mm-hmm. and gas operations. Right, um, and it's a it's a bit surprising that hasn't been finalized yet. But you know those are difficult issues to deal with. And, and but but you would have to say um, that those are significant efforts. I mean, I I do think the West Virginia case p- could potentially cause issues for epa's approach to vehicle emissions and we we can talk about that Mm -hmm. but um but those are sort of their their two big um initiatives in the regulatory area i I think you're right though that that they were focused much more on the possibility of legislative efforts um Mm -hmm. that that could achieve their their goals when it came to climate change and i know of course that the the the, uh, the collapse of Build That Better has been a, a disappointment because I, I think they, they believed c- correctly that, um, that carrots were likely to be a much more palatable approach than sticks when it came to, to regulation. And so, you know, the efforts to give very generous tax subsidies to clean energy, um, uh, uh, I, I, I think, was the part of what they wanted to do. And that now seems, at least for now, to be off the table.
1: Now, it seems that the approach you were mentioning on methane, at least in the oil and gas sector, so leaking from uh, uh, pipelines and wellheads, would be a technology-specific approach at the source. Unless I misunderstood a quotation that was attributed to you that I just read, you think that will pass muster with the Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah, I,
0: I doubt it'll, it'll ever get to the Supreme Court. Okay.
1: And and one other one before we leave uh, what's happening now with the Biden administration. What about the social cost of carbon? Naturally, to economists like me, that's something that's near and dear to our heart. Uh, that has also been in the courts. What's your view on that from a, from a legal perspective?
0: You know, it depends entirely on how it is used. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there have been efforts to, essentially to directly strike down the social cost of carbon, and you've probably been following those cases. And I think the courts have correctly said that, you know, in and of itself, that alone is not the type of action that is reviewable in court, and it won't be reviewable until uh, until it's used in a, mm-hmm. in, in a, in a regulation. Um, I I think it will depend on the specific contours of the regulation that they're doing. As you know, all these regulatory programs have different standards that the agencies have to meet. And if it's if it's the kind of standard that allows them to consider benefits and costs, I, I think it depends on the specific context. And I think there will be some interesting litigation about that. Mm-hmm. And, and and especially we could see that um, in the context of natural gas pipelines. Uh-huh. If, if FERC decides to use the social cost of carbon as a rationale for rejecting... Uh, a natural gas pipeline, that would present the issue in a very different context. And I think they might run into trouble there. I I know that's something that's under consideration, Mm -hmm. but they have not done that yet.
1: But of these various uh, policies that are moving forward, we may see in uh, proposed regulations, some that would survive, and as you said, not even go to the Supreme Court, but certainly survive this recent test that's now imposed. The one that I would think would be most of a stretch and most difficult would be the proposed rules from the Securities and Exchange Commission about disclosure. Or do you think differently?
0: No, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, in some ways, I think the West Virginia decision will have a much bigger impact on agencies other than EPA. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that the court looks at is whether historically um, an agency was understood to have that kind of role and the idea that the Securities and Exchange Commission would essentially be regulating greenhouse gases and, and they would do it in the form of, of a disclosure but, but in a at least as proposed it would be a pretty intrusive form of disclosure and so I, I think that that um, that there's a fairly good chance that if the if the SEC finalizes what it proposed, that it could, it's likely to run into trouble in the courts.
1: Now, you know, I know that you're someone who's uh, close with your wonderful family, and I suspect you're someone who is close and likes to work with youth in general, although I don't know that for a fact. I'm just guessing that. And that makes me wonder about what's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? You know, most prominently, obviously, Greta Thunberg, but also students and young people, much more broadly than that, in Europe and the United States, became very prominent in 2019, somewhat in a hiatus in 2020 because of the pandemic. But then they were back in force in 2021 at Glasgow at the climate negotiations. Um, what's your reaction to those youth movements of climate activism?
0: I I have to say that I've, I've, I've been a bit skeptical. Mm -hmm. Um, and not because I, in any way, I, I question the sincerity or the, or the passion that they bring to the issue. But as you know, it, it's much more complicated than a demand that we phase out fossil fuels. And, um, and decision makers certainly will be influenced by public opinion, and we're already, you know, we've seen that for years. Part of the problem with mm-hmm. climate change is it's never really risen to the top of the agenda for most voters. Um, but but ultimately, these decisions are really hard, and and we're seeing that now with with the dramatic increase in energy prices. You know, politicians are focused on on the cost that that imposes on families, and 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 so I think um, you know any effort to deal constructively with climate is going to have to balance all of those issues, and maybe this cohort will will be able to strike that balance in a in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, but I think I think that remains to be seen, and it's hard to know at this point whether it's sort of i think what do you call it a cohort effect or a youth effect or an age effect or an age effect and my sense is it's probably some of both right um uh, but in terms of what it will ultimately mean to uh, efforts to reduce climate change I, i think i think the jury is out
1: and so where does that leave you finally in terms of the scale of optimism to pessimism about future progress on climate change
0: I've thought a lot about that, and I have two answers. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to climate change uh, in the United States, I still think that there is a a good chance of having comprehensive climate change legislation. Uh, And I know that people are skeptical when I say that because they look at the polarized Congress, but I I do think you need to something like the situation that occurred in 1990, where you have a Republican president. And I, you know, I was a big Mitt Romney supporter. I think he would have been such a president. Uh, And maybe the other House of Congress, you know, in in Democratic hands, and the kind of back and forth and the negotiation that goes into something like that. I I think there are many people in the business community that would like to have the certainty of of legislation. And so I, I think I'm still optimistic that we could see something like that in the relatively near future. But but i always remind myself that you know we're intensely focused on the united states and appropriately so but ultimately it seems to me that it's it's a it's a technology question and until there is a way to provide people with electricity and to and to power and mobility that is at least close to being cost competitive with with coal and oil i i, th- I think it's going to be an uphill battle and i and so my my hope and you've heard me say this before is that we'll not only look at sort of regulatory approaches, uh, but we'll consider whether those approaches really are the best way to incentivize sort of next-generation technologies or whether there's other government actions that could be done. And, and so I, I tend to be a technological optimist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are technological breakthroughs that are um, at least you know, on the horizon that could help us solve the problem. But ultimately, for me, climate change is a technology issue and not a regulatory issue.
1: I'll take that as a positive note of technological optimism and uh, bring things to a close right there. Listen, thank you very much, Jeff, for taking time to join us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed talking with you.
1: Our guest today has been Jeffrey Homestead, who leads the Environmental Strategies Group at Bracewell in Washington, D.C. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.keep.hks.harvard.edu.